Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I hope that you're having a good Tuesday when this releases. Uh, We are excited to be jumping into another great interview uh, with all of you today. We have actually one of my favorite people on the show, but we'll get to that in a moment. Hey, quick reminder, if you are one of our regular listeners or if you're checking this out for the first time, would love if you could rate and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen at Spotify or other. Um, Definitely check us out. Share this with uh, friends. We're going to be getting into some really important topics in today's uh, interview. And, uh, you know, you guys might be thinking, well, why is Brandon opening the show? Doesn't didn't didn't Brandon relegate Phil to the co-host role? And now Phil has to open the show. Well, uh, it's actually because I don't have Phil with me today, but I am not flying solo. I am not flying solo. Uh, I am graced with the presence of uh, a friend and a colleague uh, and somebody who's been on the show before. I, I, I would dub uh, this gentleman as probably the nicest guy in global orphan care. <laughs> I've got none other than Samuel Rich uh, on the show with me today co-hosting. Sam, how are you, buddy? I'm doing great. I'm actually not in my uh, homeland of England right now. I'm visiting my girlfriend in Finland. So I'm in the land of saunas, reindeers, and a lot of coffee. So it's, things are good. Well, there you go. Well, I, I like that because you know Finland. You know, I'm 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 part Swedish, oh. so I'm very I'm very partial to Scandinavians, and I uh, actually have some distant relatives that still live on the Oland Islands, which is technically a part of Finland. Finland. Yeah. So so yeah, you enjoying it out there, buddy? Oh, I'm loving it. Yeah, I'm actually going to get my first sauna right after the podcast, so I try not to jump out too early. <laughs> first sauna okay well you guys heard it here first well sam you know uh you obviously uh are a media and advocacy coordinator with one million home and you guys may not know this because of uh sam's lost kites fame and uh past guest spot on episode 16 of the think orphan podcast uh but not only all of that Sam is the editor for Think Orphan. So, uh, Sam, it's great to have you. Catch us up a little bit, man. What 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 have you been working on lately? Uh, how's how's life treating you, man? It's been a re- actually a really exciting time, really busy time because so many things have been going on. So I won't try to go on for too long. But um, Lost Kites, after a few years on Amazon, um, is now we've made it a a free open resource on YouTube. So. Yeah, I I think probably we can drop that link in the show notes. And also, um, I was a cameraman for a documentary in Papua New Guinea in January 2020, just before uh, the pandemic uh, kicked off, um, where I was filming with a charity called I Care For You. And one of the things they do is they're working with getting rid of HIV stigma. We have one of the goals of bringing, keeping families together. Of course, if uh, parents are healthy, not getting sick, they're taking the medication, then families will, you know, not be broken apart because of uh, loss of a parent. So that is really exciting. That that's just um, just come out. It's actually been uh, shown to four houses in the main cinema in Port Moresby, and they're doing uh, showings across the country, which is pretty cool. It's really taken off, and I'm I'm really excited for that because. I really believe in the vision of that piece. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. You know, anytime we talk about HIV AIDS, obviously there's so much crossover between 
HIV, AIDS, and orphan care spaces. Um, so those types of media things that sensitize and bring awareness and education around um, HIV, AIDS, and uh, you know, stigma that unfortunately is all too common. Uh, those are really, really valuable. So, so th- is that in theaters right now? Did yeah, I get that it's right? It's in theaters, and also soon um, it's going to be. I believe it's going to be embedded actually into the website of uh, Beyond. I think it's BeyondTheIsland.org. But I'll get the right link in the show notes. But yeah, it's uh, it's showing in theaters right now, which is amazing. I've been being sent photos, and they've actually requested more showings of it, which is incredible. Um, yeah, really, really cool. And apparently one pastor reached out to the director and said, we, I just want to show this everywhere. And it's inviting friends yeah. there. And it's just a really powerful story. There's a lady called Sylvia um, who, uh, yeah, uh, is now an amazing advocate breaking down stigma. She's actually a, a social worker herself. She's working with uh, predominantly with ladies and just a really ama- amazing how the story and the awareness this comes together um, to, yeah, it is already breaking down that stigma, and I really believe it will be a force for keeping families together, which is always a good thing. Oh, that's really cool, man. Well, we will definitely link those in uh, the show notes and, you know, the chance to watch Lost Kites for free. I mean, I, I had to watch it on my Amazon, uh, you know, uh, deal. <laughs> so the fact that now it's free and open access on YouTube, you guys got to go check that out. It's a it's a it's a seminal documentary. So, yeah, great to have you on with us today, man. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. And, you know, you're not the only one on the show with us today. Uh, we actually have a great uh, interview uh, today with with someone that uh, that you and I both know and, and get to work with. You know, uh, for those that aren't aware, One Million Home, we kind of like to bring in a lot of various people, not just uh, the guy that, you know, does the Lost Kites documentary, but uh, <laughs> we get to work with some great technical advisors. And um, I'm actually excited to jump into an interview. So, um, uh, by the way, I mean, with Phil, uh, you know, Phil Dark, who we all know and love, he's he's in Hawaii. He's in Hawaii. Sam, haven't you? You've been to Hawaii, right? Yeah, I actually lived there for over two years, so I'm a little bit jealous that he's there right now. Were you Were you a YWAMer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. YWAM. YWAM, there you were. So Phil's daughter is actually at YWAM Kona now as well, and uh, so Phil's off visiting her. So that's that's why we got Sam in today, and also why I was solo on this interview. So uh, we actually have on the show today the one and only Deborah Gray. Deborah Gray is a technical advisor for One Million Homes, so I've really enjoyed working with her quite a bit. Um, and she is the seminal, I don't know, <laughs> expert when it comes to attachment, uh, a conversation that we've had around trauma and attachment uh, on this uh, podcast, you know, for a long time. And Deborah is just a, a fantastic resource. She's authored more books than I can think of. Uh, and uh, we're just really excited to uh, to hear from Deborah today. So uh, what do you think, Sam? Should we get into this interview, man? Let's do it. Let's do it. I'd like to hear from her in person, not just in the editing suite. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, there you go. Well, here's our conversation with Deborah Gray. Well, Deborah Gray, uh, you know, as a friend and a colleague, I feel in some ways that this is a way overdue, but welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for uh, inviting me here today, Brandon. It's really a pleasure to uh, share this time with you in the audience. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, You know, 
you wouldn't know this, but you've been brought up on our podcast before as somebody that has influenced others. And uh, so I'm sure that our audience is is just looking forward to kind of gleaning from from your expertise. And uh, But for those that maybe don't know you, uh, could you take a moment just to introduce yourself to our audience and, and share a little bit of your background working with uh, children and families? Certainly, I'd be glad to. First of all, I come from a family that has a lot of foster care and adoption that has gone through uh, generations. And um, I've been interested in the concept of attachment and how trauma influences attachment simply by observing uh, people in my growing up years. Then in graduate school, I had the opportunity to go to school developing an expertise in attachment. We were looking particularly with high-risk situations uh, and pregnant moms and newborns. Um, We were just starting to apply some of the attachment theoretical information into everyday life. Um, After school, I had opportunity after opportunity to apply that. And then when um, I was working as casework supervisor for a large foster care and adoption agency, I decided I would do individual therapy. I had done it before because there was such a need for people to work with families over the long haul, helping them form attachments, work through traumas, and help the children with grief that was a delayed grieving process. I also thought how interesting it would be if we could change some of our models to make them more friendly for kids who had a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, that is, brains that had been changed with prenatal exposure, or if we could adapt things so that kids who had neglect could take advantage of a lot of the therapies. Because after neglect, kids often have a hard time holding on to the themes in therapy. They have a hard time remembering what we worked on. They have a hard time with anything that is, oh, you have to learn it here, you know, through play therapy or sand tray or uh, a more cognitive or thought-based therapy and apply it somewhere else. It's really hard for them. And so real-time experiences that then we talked about practice over and over again, those help kids better when they have early neglect and some executive functioning, or they have malnutrition in their background. So I was interested in writing materials for families um, because I had the chance to have a practice that was just unique to families who had particular kinds of needs. And I thought, well, I should share that with other people. And so that's why I've done the amount of writing that I've done. When I wrote Attaching and Adoption, it was a guide to families, basically bypassing professionals, thinking professionals will find that. But it's like, how do you form attachments with people when they come to you early or come to you after really uh, difficult early years? You know, so when a child comes to you at four, what's it look like to form attachment there when you haven't had those baby years? How about six? How about eight? And so um, 
you know, basically I've been blessed in my career to have these opportunities to be able to pass on some of the best from what my parents in sessions have taught to me. I thought at a certain point I might have the wit to take the best of each family coming through because they'd all come in with ideas and techniques. You know, I should really take advantage of these. I could not only pass them around to other families, but I could write them down for a broader audience. So if you want to know, well, how did I get all these great ideas? Well, I just, you know, collected them all from the families coming through. So I have to do a shout out to all the families who have been in in my practice for all these many years. There's really no thing, such thing as uh, learning by yourself. Uh, and even when you are uh, the the clinician in the room, of course, you're gleaning from the experiences of those that you've worked with. And, you know, along those lines, there is this topic um, that really over the last, I don't know, five to 10 years has almost become ubiquitous. And that's this that's this piece around trauma. And, you know, over your decades of work and families that you've worked with, uh, you've gotten, you know, you've gotten your fair share of clinical work uh, for people that have gone through trauma. You know, and a lot of our listeners are, you know, people that are have, are working with kids that have passed through adverse experiences. And um, and because, it, you know, trauma is really one of those things that because it becomes so ubiquitous, it can almost start to lose some of its meaning or people will be like, wait, are we talking about the same thing? Because you talk about this trauma or that trauma. Um, you know, given your, you know, years of expertise and practice, could you just, um, you know, in the broadest of terms, just kind of help our listeners understand what are the ramifications on children's development and their psychology when they've undergone trauma? That's such a good point, because when we talk about trauma, it does get pretty fuzzy because people use trauma as if it um, it happens to just everybody. But actually, when children have trauma, it changes their brains. And trauma is something that is so unusual and so jarring that it makes a difference in how people think and feel. And so, Um, You know, if I almost get into a car wreck on the freeway, which living in Seattle, (laughs) that happens a couple times a year, I haven't been traumatized. I've been frightened. I have an alarm response. I'm not traumatized. Trauma is unique in that it makes the sustained impact on people that they remember the rest of their lives in most cases. And so, um, you know, often we say, well, it, if we have adoption, that in itself is traumatic. It may or may not be. Many children feel anxious over some of the adoption themes. Some children have been moved in foster care placements. They've lost parents traumatically, and that's trauma. And so we treat trauma a little differently. When children dissociate, dissociate is you're alive, the lights are on, but basically you stop integrating or putting your thoughts and feelings together. You drop 
that out of your life narrative because it's so overwhelming. You can't even think about it. You know, that dissociation is unique to trauma, and that's not normally found in children. And so we can take children who are adopted children who have had trauma and who have not. Some dissociate, some don't. You know, all children have extra work to do when they've um, had adoption in their lives, though. You know, it it's extra. Well, I was talking to a girl yesterday who's 13, and she said, we did the trauma stuff, the really scary stuff when I was young. She said, now I'm here to see you then for my teenage work around adoption. And, you know, I just thought she got the clarity of that because everyone in adoption has to think about the big questions. Like, how am I the same and different than two sets of parents? What's it like to grow up with families um, where I don't look like them necessarily? If I do, everyone thinks I'm a biologic child, but I'm not. And that makes me feel like, do I owe them an explanation? You know, it's just the, you have to put a little more work into the identity work. That's not necessarily trauma. If, and, you know, I don't need to stay too long on this. But I was um, just doing a, a workshop in Spokane. And the person who invited me to do it is an adopted person. She said, I never felt a primal wound or trauma around my adoption. But I did have some extra work that I did around my adopted identity, you know. But what we find is that with trauma, we're going to have to, I'm going to shoot shoot away from uh, adoption right now, just into trauma. We have to, we have to provide extra special care for the kids. And we have to adapt that for their unique brains if they've been through certain experiences of malnutrition prematurity, prenatal exposure uh, to substances like homebrew in Africa, you know, whatever a village is making, which is like kind of a shot of vodka for every drink, or uh, opioids prenatally here in the States, prenatal exposure to alcohol, things like that. Yeah, no, that's really, really kind of helpful framework. And I I appreciate the... um, insight, you know, this is, you know, to our listeners, this is not just kind of one person's thoughts. This is based on years of experience. And when we do talk about trauma and it is applied, you know, quite liberally in some regards, um, it is really important for us to kind of step back and kind of think, you know, whether it's chronic trauma or acute trauma, what are those, what are the effects of that? You know, so kind of hearing what, what the what what follows, you know, that traumatic experience or experiences uh, is really helpful. And, you know, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad, you know, that you got into adoption, you know, because that's something that that we've all heard. Um, adoption is trauma. And I just appreciate kind of the nuance that you approach that we've we've put that kind of question out to past guests as well. You know, those that are involved in the adoption space. And that includes, you know, people that have left orphanages that have been on our show, you know, people that weren't adopted or and and actually were separated from family. And they come out and they say, you know, actually, I want to adopt, 
you know. So th- these these are the kind of things that actually uh, can disrupt these overarching narratives that unfortunately we get into one camp or the other. So I really appreciate those distinctions, you know, related to that trauma piece, related to that adversity piece. Um, it, it can have other uh, it can have other you know mal uh, forming effects, um, you know, so specifically with you, a significant topic, you know, when it comes to caring for children that are either in care or have gone through some form of adversity is disrupted attachment, um, or attachment disorders. I know within the, um, foster care and adoption space, both for, uh, people that have adopted or the adopted people themselves or kids in foster care, we, we hear a lot about reactive attachment disorder now. This is kind of like becoming a, a more common um, term that's also being used. And attachment is really kind of, you know, as you alluded to in the opening, is really a specialty for yours. This is what a lot of the literature that you've created is about, all the, a lot of the research that you've done. Can you just help our listeners understand what is what is attachment and what is it what is it what does it mean when there's a broken attachment? You know, how do those types of things develop? I'd be glad to do that. And then I want to go back just before we move from the last subject. If someone says adoption is traumatic and they're using trauma in just the global way our society has started to use it, I don't want to argue with them around that. But if you say that in around a bunch of clinical people, they'll say, oh, no, it's not, <laughs> because we're finding just a different definition of trauma. We're looking at, you know, what does all the research say about that? You know, we have many, 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 many studies around children, adoption, foster care and trauma, you know, who's traumatized, who's not. And so we use a careful definition but it's not worth arguing or having a split in the field. Okay. It's it's like, let's just get along and do the best we can for the kid. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do our best for the kids. That That's ultimately what it comes down to. Thank you for that clarification. That's really important. But then let's move on to attachment. When most of us think of attachment, it, it you know, we think of really close relationships with people. And in fact, that's what a, an attachment is. It's our closest relationship. Most of us think of attachments in kind of a, a sweet, uh, a sweet flavored way. Oh, you know, the person who really is happy to see me at the end of the day, my special person. Or if I'm really in trouble, that's the person who I can call that person and they'll be there for me. You know, we that's it. and and for children, we might think of yeah, these these early memories of our of our parents, you know, I have one compelling interest of me or picture in my head all these years later of my dad holding me and comforting me because my mother had gone to sing, you know, for choir practice or something. And I was missing her, you know, so I'm thinking of, of comfort and his soothing voice. And, but in contrast, I'm thinking of a little boy who came in to see me, this was years ago, he was out of a Romanian orphanage and had significant neglect there. He had been in a family. And then when his mother could not keep him safe, she said to him, I have to have you go into an orphanage because I can't keep you safe. In fact, while she was off working, he'd been sexually abused. And she felt the older children were 
um, able to keep themselves safe and, and, you know, she couldn't protect him. Anyway, as he got closer to his mom, who was a single mom, and they were making some progress, he suddenly got much worse. So I said, come in, you know, let, it was a Sunday. It's like, I don't know what's going on, but I'll see you on a Sunday afternoon, which is something I just don't do except in emergencies. We were looking out the window and I could see his mom out the window of my office, just standing, just looking so sad and, you know, dejected just when she thought they were making progress. And he said, Deborah, I remember when I felt this way before. And I don't want to feel this way again, where I just got given away. And for many kids, when they think of attachment, that's what they're thinking of. They're thinking of, I try and try and try to get close, and then I lose that person. Or I trust that person, and then that person gets drunk, and they beat me. Or I trust that person, then I got dropped off at the orphanage. Or I trust that person and that person comes in during the days. They may even take me home for a weekend visit. And I think they really love me. And then they get another job and they never come back again. Or in, in John Breer, who himself was an abused child, he said, it, when you have an attachment problem, and especially if it's attachment with trauma tinge to it, it's like you look through a doorway in a room and you see all these people and they're close together and they're happy together and they know that language of closeness. And you really want to go into the room, but the doorway's wired and you could be shocked, hurt, or injured going through that doorway. And there's that longing and yet at the same time, tremendous fear. Because anyone who's ever lost an attachment knows there's nothing that hurts worse, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, that, that loss, that, that, that component of it is, is so significant. You know, we do have a lot of listeners here in the States as well as people that are focused on, you know, orphan care and kids outside of family care in the, in the global South as well. And one of the topics that comes up regularly um, is around, you know, volunteerism. And I've heard people, you know, say like, oh, you can't, um, you know, go and visit an orphanage because that'll give the kids an attachment disorder. And I just want to, and I've just had to clarify the, the attachment was the fact that they're not with their mom. So of course, having a revolving door of volunteerists or short-term missioners or whatever, that can exacerbate problems for the kids. And it can also lead to some other kind of uh, social miscues and, and it is an unhealthy thing, but the attachment and that brokenness and, and, you know, that separation is really what, what drives that attachment. And, you know, when kids have been in orphanages, like the, like the one you mentioned from Romania or elsewhere, or kids have been bouncing around, um, you know, foster care as they do, uh, unfortunately too often here in the States, um, you know, those, I, I don't know. I mean, do you use the word disorder? Uh, is it broken attachment, disorganized attachment? There's a lot of kind of adjectives that we use or, or to kind of describe it. But what is that? What is that? What is that brokenness, you know, or however you want to describe it? What does that look like um, when when a kid has gone through that? You know, formally, when people use uh, a diagnostic term, reactive attachment disorder, 
it means you have reactivity to the, the person you're trying to attach to. And about 52% of younger children, according to some work by Charles Zana, who's you know a, a great researcher in the area of attachment, about 52% of US kids who are younger coming into foster care can qualify for a reactive attachment disorder diagnosis. That doesn't mean it's like a stamp on your forehead forever. But many times when kids have rotating caregivers or they have foster parent after foster parent after foster parent, especially if they're moved very suddenly, we find that they develop attachment disorders. And then it's very difficult for the next person to try to attach to them. It doesn't mean all bets are off. It's just it's going to take a lot harder. And the kids will have this kind of approach avoidance, approach avoidance. And I'm afraid of the person I attach to. Attachment is formed in the very early months of life, Brandon. And so when in naturally, and so it is it has connections to our viscera, our gut. And it's not so much what I know about, oh, these people are this or these people are that, which is up in our cortex. It's in the lower areas of our brain, you know, more limbic system. And it's connected, you know, up and down, up being cortex down, being, you know, the lower centers of our brain that are more nonverbal. And it'll send signals down to, I'm in danger. Am I afraid to be around this person? Or if your attachment figure is an unsafe one, and that's what disorganized attachment is a lot like, that person is frightened or frightening all the time, or that person can't meet my needs. When we have situations like that, it does form what's called a disorganized attachment, and that is they sometimes might feel secure and sometimes they might feel terrified of you. And, and they don't know quite what strategy to have around people. Sometimes having that working definition just makes it a little bit more clear. Oh, my child just doesn't know what to do. Sometimes they want to approach and they seem to sit next to me and enjoy reading a book or they ask me to play with them. And, you know, we're really having a good time. And then they say something really cutting or they go sit on somebody else's lap and try to act like that person is their parent, which is not a normal thing after they've been with you a period of time. But attachments are always relationships. And we work towards a secure attachment because that's the type of attachment that really gives us the most pleasure in life. It's healthier for our brains if we have those. You know, and those attachments have this sense of rhythmicality and peace and resonance and shared enjoyment, or I feel um, really seen and loved and known in your presence and vice versa. And I can share things with you and you'll re react to what I share in a really sensitive, caring way. Sensitive is we often use kind of in a technical way, and that is just the pe people are really kind and attuned to our most, most um, sensitive and, and attuned when we're vulnerable okay. or when we're sharing something really deep. And so we look at 
environments that bring out the best in kids is ones in which there's high nurturance, like just a lot of nurturing, you know, good meal times, lots of play together. Um, when you when you share something you're afraid of, people don't act dismissive, but they really comfort you and try to understand it. People are curious about you. They feel like you're worth getting to know. And that that type of nurturance is there and then sensitivity to those um, to the unique person that they are at it, that is the person respects and adapts to who you are. Yeah, no, that's that's really, really helpful. You know, the, these definitions are not just like, okay, well, now just turn to your glossary and, you know, such and such, you know, psychology book. Like this is this is the real work that we're talking about on the Think Orphan podcast because we're talking about kids that have um, you know, lost those attachments and, and do need to, 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 you know, gain healthy attachment. Um, you know, for our listeners, I would just say, if you guys, you know, were to go onto Amazon, there's a lot of literature that Deborah has written, um, books that, that you guys could be plugging into, whether you're a parent or whether you're a therapist, uh, promoting healthy attachments is a great one, especially for clinicians. There's attaching in adoption. There's attaching through love, hugs, and play. Um, there's uh, nurturing adoptions. You know, uh, th- there's really. <laughs> I-, I think the list could go on and on. I don't actually know the uh, the bottom of the well when it comes to books that you've written, Deborah. But I do know that your resources have helped a lot of people um, understand adoption um, and understand attachment and understand, you know, how to, how to, you know, build healthier, you know, relationships with kids, especially when they have gone through traumatic experiences, you know, as uh, I, I would love to, even if you just had maybe a few really like meaningful, practical ways that you, you know, encourage parents to build healthy attachment with their children, especially if they have, you know, gone through either broken attachments or, or, or have some sort of, you know, challenges. Sure. Probably the the most underutilized thing that parents uh, could focus on is having time to play every day. And if we look especially at high excitement play, where you have to look at the other person's face and find out what comes next, outdoor play that has a lot of motor activity, like capture the flag, freeze tag, you know, Uh, for younger kids, like Mother May I is fun. But ones where you have to be keyed into the other person's face and body. There are two reasons why that works well. Is one, in high excitement, that's where the brain has the most uh, connections firing up. And for many of our kids, if the wiring diagram, you know, for their brain just didn't get enough stimulation to properly wire up. And so you're you're helping the brain wire so that it has um, better stability and so that it forms connections so that it can understand those expressions on another person's face, what their body's doing. And when you do it in a fun way, then it doesn't seem quite so difficult, you know, for them to Uh, capture those moments. You know, you can do it in kind of a, now we need to have the feelings charred out. Now let's do that. And and that gets kind of boring. 
you know, but if you say, okay, let's go out and play horse or let's play pig with basketball. I can remember one of my sons saying, mom, you're pretty good at horse, you know. (laughs) How'd you, how'd you do against him in (laughs) one-on-one? Well, since he kept on growing and I didn't, and I kept getting older at a time where that was to his advantage and not mine, not so great, but we had our moment. There you go. (laughs) In the the memories. Actually, as he got older, just for the fun of it, it's, uh, I'm just thinking of, we used to play soccer with our border collie. And the border collie kind of could figure out how to pass the ball. You know, we've been trying to get the lab to pick up on it, but, you know, she just doesn't have the moves. Yeah. Well, border border collies are a sheep or a sheep herding dog. So it kind of makes sense in a regard. That's fun, though. It is fun. It was just, you know, but you're having some fun and excitement and people are in the moment and they're not working off a list. You know, sometimes I think we take a lot of the fun out of parenting because we're so worried. Are we making gains against the curve? And, you know, we've got this big rehab job. You know, let's get them into five therapies and we're on the road all the time and we're dining in our car, you know, (laughs) it's like if you could play an hour a day, it helps with executive functioning, which really helps with the brain. It also helps if it's high motor, you know, lots of motor activity, the movement, it'll help with the ability of heart rate and respiration. Some of those lower things that are kind of unstable after a lot of neglect. And, and it helps with relationship. Kids will come to you and say, play with me, play with me. And so, and mealtimes, make mealtimes fun. You know, that's not where you work on manners when you're working on attachment. And you have food and lay it out and you, you, you make it enjoyable. You know, sometimes we, I, um, there, there are little things that we come up with to make it fun. Like I have those books that are, would you rather, would you rather this or would you rather that, you know, would you rather have all the candy that you could eat, um, you know, for one day, or would you rather, you know, it's some other uh, alternative, but do some things that are fun. You know, I can remember one of my mealtimes, my dad would you know, if you could have an eyeball, an extra eyeball anywhere else on your body, where would you put it? You know, would it be on the end of your finger where you could put your eye out? But there are advantages, you know. Well, that makes the mealtime fun or you tell family stories. Sue Badeau, who with her husband, Hector, has so many children. She said they'd sit at the table for a couple hours and just tell stories. and. Uh- So you want to make food, mealtime fun, include the kids in those activities, and comforting routines are great. You know, those rocking, closeness, reading books together, things that, you know, just are are unique to the family, snuggles, um, back rubs, you know, and you have to find out for kids who have been maltreated, especially with sex abuse, what feels uh, good to them, um, what might start to bring up feelings that they might be being sexually abused again, you know, and, and, and what 
veers away from that. But, you know, we are mammals and we're in these physical bodies. And so you want to do things that are comforting. So nighttime routines, you know, I have lovely memories of my childhood. My mother was a singer and she would sing to us at night. And her voice was very beautiful. And that's still something that I treasure from my own childhood. You know, I'm a therapist. Not everything went well. You know, every therapist has to have some dings in the in their childhood to be, you know, in this area, it seemed. But I really hold on to those positives, you know. But you're looking for what needs more comfort in life. What are those touch points throughout the day that helps your child feel connected? And you take the um, load off too. With some friends of mine, we came up with uh, games and activities for attaching with your child. And I wrote a little piece and uh, Megan Clark wrote a little piece. We've co-authored it. We just invited some friends who work with uh, children to put their favorite activities and story and um, games in. And it's not an expensive book, but it has some activities. And it's especially geared for kids who are not neurotypical. And you haven't heard that word. It's like your kids have ADHD or prenatal exposure or autism. You know, so their brains are just a little different um, brain than the expected brain or the typical brain. But it's like what also works for them and how do you adapt and One of the things that some of the families do is they just call a dance party and everybody dances for a little bit. You know, it's just it it makes your your home a fun place to be. Well, I was just going to say, I'd love that. I mean, in in a lot of ways, you know, as you're as you're going through this, you know, as as a therapist, as somebody working with families, I would say I'm encouraged to a certain degree, no, to a high degree, uh, being an adoptive dad myself, I would say that basketball has been a godsend for our family. You know, like honestly, uh, our son, we adopted him when he was, you know, middle elementary um, and playing basketball has been huge, you know? So, and and like even little games, we were at, um, replanted uh, this last weekend. Uh, We did uh, an event here in the Seattle area uh, and we came back with some of those same here paddles, which is like that, like, you know, building camaraderie, building, you know, among foster parents, but we're using them the last few days just around our home. All right. Somebody's going to tell a story or say what they like. If you like it too, put up your same here paddle, you know, kind of thing. So, so it's, it's encouraging, you know, we can do a lot of work in just doing that, which is enjoyable. If we could just kind of, you know, if we could kind of unbutton our, you know, top, button on our shirt and loosen up a little bit, let the hair down and just have fun with the kids. That makes a world of difference. Uh, and, and that, and you, and you guys heard it from here first. Well, maybe not first, but you heard it from Deborah Gray herself. So play with your kids. That's, that's, that's a big takeaway. (laughs) Yes. And also do some one-on-one time with a child. And sometimes we have to find a way to carve that out. That's individual. And the other kids will be like, what about me? And then when I think about that, I think, well, what about other children in the family? Couldn't we do that every day if we, or at least every other day, if we could give up some things that really don't nurture our families? Um, Sometimes I'll have a piece of paper and give it to, uh, in families where it's a two-parent family or 
I'll suggest the second piece for a single parent. Give this to your a, a close relative or close friend. But anyway, we write down some things that they think the other could give up to create time for fun and closeness and play or basketball. And, and they'll write down 10 things. And then I'll say, okay, you have to be able to barter to get five back. And so they'll be like, not the pastor search committee. Yes, the pastor search committee goes. But, you know, there is a lot of time when the kids are raised to look through a bunch of other things. You know, there are seasons. And this time with your child is really uniquely wonderful. So make it fun. You know, don't stress so much. Play more, dance more, listen to music and so forth. Because those are the things you remember. And those are the things that really change how kids feel towards you. It's easy to put the defenses down. Now, that's really, really helpful. And, you know, I, w- I want to go back to something that you had um, alluded to um, at the start of the section, uh, which was basically just kind of like how your own career you know, took off and, and kind of, you know, your approaches to both not only learning, but then also disseminating that lo- knowledge. I mean, you have been doing pr- uh, providing therapy for children and families for, for a while now. Um, and, you know, things that things that people are talking about now maybe weren't talked about 20, 30, however many years ago. Right. Um, could you maybe just kind of give us your pulse on how has I don't know if industry is the right term, but how has, you know, kind of family therapy evolved over time from your experience? And and uh, please forgive me, Deborah, I'm not making any any uh, allusions uh, to age here as much as I can avoid it. Uh, but, you know, from what you from what you've seen, you know, how have these things or like what are people talking about now that that years ago? was was hardly even a consideration like like help us to kind of understand even kind of the history around family therapy well that's a really good question um the the or and 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 i'm not sensitive about my age um i'm fine my mother is 96 years old and still ticking so you know i've had a, a different perspective also as a christian i'm made for god I'm made for God's use. And so as long as that seems to be a shared understanding, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, that's what I'll be doing. So back back to the issue though. Um, and for non-Christians, you know, I don't mean to be offensive. This program's for everyone, but this is an integral part of how I tell my story. Absolutely. Okay. So so but back to changes in the field, um, it was thought that attachment was a use and get it or you don't get it. There was a critical period. Unfortunately, um, many of the theoretical people never really met adoptive parents uh, or foster parents, kinship parents who knew differently. And so when people actually started to uh, include them in studies, they're like, oh, there doesn't seem to be a critical period at all. And as a matter of fact, now we know we have stem cells in the attachment areas of our brain. And of course, that makes sense because, you know, think of the generations where people have had wars and 
um, illnesses that cause grandparents to be parenting children after attachment breaks or losses or, you know, we have to have these stem cells that are continuing in our brain. And that's from work uh, from Dan Siegel, his theoretical work. Another thing, one thing that's pretty new in the field, and I would say in the last 10 years, is it used to be, you change your thoughts, you change your behavior, or all behavior comes from thoughts. And when I was working with kids, it's like, no, because I'm noticing that many children have this very big feelings from early events that happened in their lives. You know, just a whoosh of abandonment fear uh, or uh, a terror where there, it's a wordless terror. And, and, and what we find is that um, we, we do store memories in the early part of our brain that was developing at the time. It doesn't have a narrative or a thought or words to it. The hippocampus doesn't really come along line with narrative memory. That's like my life is this, my thoughts are this. Until about 22 months for some people, you can get there a little earlier later. But many of us have very early, more feeling memory from that. And so our therapies now take advantage of that and do much more body work with that. You know, and I, I was doing some of that earlier, but I'm taking advantage of some of the other practitioners who are working with polyvagal theory, you know, understanding about our vagus nerve and, and ways to really work with that. And sure, um, who wrote some years ago, affective regulation and affect dysregulation, then wrote a book uh, within the last, forgetting what you I think it came out in 2012. It describes a lot more about using different centers of the brain. The old family therapy is the, there's someone in the family or some that's got the family dysfunctional. Therefore, we look at how the family's functioning and we try to figure out what's going wrong. And it didn't account for what happens when you invite somebody with trauma into the family and that toxicity from trauma comes in with them. What happens to other members of the family when somebody screams three hours a day? Or when someone has dreams of hurting another person and talks about that at the breast breakfast table? How does that, and you're not wanting to blame that person because of their experiences. That person might be just seven years old, you know? But it does have an effect on the rest of the family. You know, when you're attaching to people, when I say dysregulation, if you're not familiar with that word, it just means uh, lack of balance. If you're emotional, lack of balance is such that you're constantly afraid and you're constantly stressed and you scream or you go silent and kind of it, nobody can reach you. The people you're attaching to, they feel those feelings because you have to open up to the feelings of the other person. And then what begins to happen is that other person then starts to feel some of those feelings themselves. You know, and so it's not now what's wrong with the family, but it's like, how do you deal with loving a person when loving the person hurts your own mind and body? 
and you are dealing with a lot of stress yourself uh, because you love this, this new little person in your family. And so when I was working years ago, I realized this isn't going to help to use traditional family therapy models. We really need to have a different model. And um, when I worked in trauma years ago, uh, or even working on attachment, they wanted the parent out in the waiting room. And it's like, well, how can we do that and be effective? First of all, the kids can't really attach the person who's not there. (laughs) And because I worked in infant mental health, I was already like, I know how to do this part. We just need to do it at an older age. But also, when you're traumatized, most of the time you want somebody in to comfort and console you. Even if you're too scared to tell your story in front of them, you want them in at the end of session to, to comfort and console you. And the family really is going to help you out. And so I was kind of tweaked. You don't know who your client is if you have a parent come in and help. And it's now that which was novel was what a bunch of us were doing anyway because it worked better. And now it's considered the thing to do as long as you have a steady parent. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really helpful. I mean, I'm in my, you know, mid thirties, you know, we, our family benefits from counseling and therapy, and you could almost just assume that this is how it's always been. But, but just like any other field, you know, these things are evolving and progressing and we're learning new things. So it's, it's really helpful to kind of have that uh, paradigm, you know, uh, in this podcast, we've talked a lot about attachment. We've talked about trauma. Um, we've even talked about therapy. I, I think it, I think it behooves us to pull a few of these things together, you know, in addition to the books that you've written and that I've listed off a few of them here. Um, you've also developed um, the attachment and trauma focused therapy postgraduate program. Uh, this is a to our listeners. This is something that I've been through before. Um, it is fantastic. It is in depth. It is um, focused for clinicians. Uh, I'm not a clinician, as uh, our audience is aware, but I benefited from it as a parent. Even um, I would love to just kind of hear, you know, what led you to developing this particular training, and you know, what is what is its contribution, you know, to better serving children and families that have been affected by trauma? To answer your question, Brandon, I developed the program because I thought it's not enough to have a day uh, lecture or a day training on a model that incorporates all the things we need to teach a, a clinician, which is how to work with attachment, how to work with trauma, how do you work with grief when it's delayed grief or traumatic grief, and how do you adapt things for people um, who have problems with executive functioning, which we find after fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, malnutrition, prematurity, as I mentioned before. How do we adapt all that? And then how do we put in adoption issues? And so in 2007, I finished the second big book, you know, I have, let me just digress for a minute, Attaching and Adoptions for Parents, Games and Activities for Attaching to a Child, that's for parents, and Attaching with Love, Hugs, and Play, that's for parents. Nurturing Adoptions, that's for clinicians. I mean, you're welcome to get it. And then Promoting Healthy Attachments, that's for clinicians or sophisticated parents. Anyway, when I finished the second big book, I it was listed as one of the 10 best 
all-time professional books in child welfare. It, it, you know, it was really quite a compliment. Casey Family Foundation put it out with that. And that, to me, let me know that it was new information and I needed to get information out. So I did the attachment trauma-focused therapy program. We've done 20 cohorts of it now, at least 20 cohorts. It was recommended by ATTACH. Um, and we decided to put it out with streaming recently. I'm teaching, actually, I'm in the midst of teaching a certificate, you know, postgraduate class right now. But I wanted to put it out streaming to make it more available to people because it's really hard to practice this on your own. You want to have backup support. And I realized when I was doing training for Portland State University, um, I'd been going down doing it for several years. But the clinicians wouldn't set up specialty practices. They said it's too hard. We don't feel like we have enough support. We, you know, it's, we're, we're afraid to do make mistakes, and the kids are difficult. You know, it, it would be so much easier if we saw adults or or children who have less severe uh, uh, problems or complicated problems. And so I thought if we had something like this, then we could ground people, give them a lot of information instead of just what's with, you know, a particular program. And the program, they could have consult groups with it. And so uh, I went down for a while to Portland. We spun off uh, consult groups. They have like eight. Some people had specialty practices. They still have them, and those have multiplied in the area. We've done the same thing here in the Seattle area. And so I'm like, well, you know, I, I don't have the lifespan to keep, you know, going community to community. So how can we get um, some dissemination here? And so that's what we've done with the ATFT. So if you're a parent and your clinician's looking for information, uh, have them sign up. It has CEUs. Every clinician has to have CEUs to practice. If your church has an orphan's ministry, you might, in a counseling program, ask your people to sign up for it. You know, because the materials, um, you know, we have a notebook. We have a text, which is promoting healthy attachments. And we have a notebook that's like 125 pages, plus the video streaming. And it'll really ground you. In, in the work. Yeah, it's 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 phenomenal material. Um, you know, as again, as an adoptive dad, I've benefited from this course and and you know, these these uh, e-learning is becoming so much more common and it's such a more effective way for really disseminating that. Um, and you know, one million home we were we were really blessed and and grateful to partner with you in this and we had actually done before you know so so people you can also check out um there's a short course that's free on journey home that's onelyinhome.com front slash journey home where you can it, which is just free and open um but if you are um a, a parent you know, and you're working with a therapist and you're recognizing the effects of 
loss attachment or the trauma that your child has gone through, this could be a key referral, you know, to the person that's seeing your child. Um, and if you wanted to jump in yourself, there's nothing stopping you. Um, we are going to have, um, we partnered not only with Deborah to to develop this uh, e-course, um, which is, you know, a substantial, it's not just, it's not like Journey Home where it's a few hours. Uh, it's it's substantial um, and, and it is accredited as uh, Deborah alluded to. Also partnered with Mike and Kristen Berry from Honestly Adoption, who are just uh, friends in this space doing really good work with families, too. So uh, definitely check out uh, the show notes uh, on thinkorphan.com. That is episode 208 uh, with Deborah Gray. And we will have uh, the link there for you to just click right on through and check out uh, the Attachment Trauma Focused Therapy course. And definitely check out uh, Deborah's books as well. All right, Deborah, we are getting ready to land this plane, but we do have a couple questions that we ask all of our guests. And uh, you have already uh, referenced multiple people that you've benefited from. You're a learning individual, not just an educator, but a learner. Uh, Those things are always uh, linked together. So uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children and families with excellence? I have watched successful parents. And I would have to say, that's the most fabulous piece for me. But there are different theorists who help me understand why that might be working that way so that then I could multiply it. I've been a consultant for One Million Home, and I've gotten to know some of the people who work in One Million Home around the world. And Helen, who works with Weza Care with One Million Home. I'm just such a fan of hers. You know, she works with kids who um, have been in orphanage settings or who are on the streets, gets them off the streets and back to their families. And yet she's constantly learning new techniques. She's part of the consult group. Um, Think of Cindy and Haiti, you know, who's managed to empty out her orphanage and it's getting kids back in families and they stay in those families. Brandon, I've been watching you and what you do with information, how your family operates. And that's really, you know, inspirational. Mike and Kristen Berry flew in so we could do some taping for um, the ATFT. And I've done lots of conferences with them. I watch what they're doing. But what everybody's doing is they're trying to do their best and leave guidance so that the path is smoother for the next person. And so it's that, you know, when when I talk about, yes, here is the ATFT. I have a piece of it, but none of this stuff gets done alone. We're made as Christians to do things in camaraderie. We're made to be in fellowship because nobody has all the pieces. We're supposed to be all knit in, and then we've got the pieces together, you know. So um, anyway, I, that's great. 
you know, I, and that's what I'm thinking of. Yes, and 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 definite shout out to Helen and Cindy, who are valued members of the community of practice at One Million Home, uh, doing good work out there. And I and I will say, well, Deborah, you you kind of killed two birds with one stone. Um, I will say that when we asked this question to another person, they had actually said Deborah Gray was that person. Do you do you want to take any guesses on who you think may have answered? Well, I guess you don't know all who's been on the show, but that was uh, Lisa Qualls said, said, oh, Deborah Gray. Deborah Gray was her answer for, for this question. So that's awesome. But, but Lisa Qualls put out the best book recently. And if you've ever heard her speak, I mean, I cried a bucket, uh, you know, <laughs> but she took an area of great hurt and she's turned it into something of tremendous value to us. I love her book and it's full of information and yet it's got this kind of um, sweetness that permeates it. You know, in scripture, it talks about the word of God as honey, but you, you see that kind of sweetness in our, our, our fellowship sometimes, what people give to others. And, and another community of practice member, Katie, you know, in El Salvador, you know, but we see people or, or you know, uh, Sue and Hector Bedeau. And, you know, it's in Sue's, Sue and Hector just have had such a wonderful attitude as they parented many children. Sue's a clinical social worker, but she trains parents, you know, and part of it is how to have a happy home. You know, those are, yeah. those are all people I, I look to. Well, there you go. And and we got the book recommendation. So uh, aside from Deborah's uh, own books and the ATFD online course, uh, check out Lisa Qualls book as well. Uh, Deborah, this has been fun. This has been fun uh, to, to get to talk. I, I mean, this isn't like the first time we've ever had an hour talking. You've made such a significant contribution to uh, the work of One Million Home and, and, and a lot of other people. So uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And thank you for your ongoing efforts um, to help so many families. Thank you so much. Well, that was a that was a great conversation. You know, Deborah's one of those people where I've talked to her so many times, but I feel like she's just such a wealth of knowledge that anytime I talk to her, I get something mm. new. And she may have even said it before, but uh, but she's uh, she's just amazing. So, uh, Sam, what what kind of jumped out to you? What what were one or two of your takeaways from uh, my conversation with Deborah? I think, but. The main takeaway I, I had was just how important um, a resource and the training that Deborah is providing. Uh, yeah, there's, there's so much going on in the world right now. Um, in England today, our prime minister has just resigned. Um, but I was thinking how people like Deborah and the training she is giving is really is impacting and changing the world. You know, the sort of training the trainers, how important that is, that ripple effect that is just you, you can't overstate um how many kids that's going to affect and how many kids are going to be benefited from that so that was the thing that really struck me is that wow we've got her on the podcast i've had the privilege of editing her content and getting it out there to me that is just it's a real privilege yeah it's huge and in the the crazy thing on that note 
Sam, is I have gone through the ATFT course. Um, I have not read any of her books. I ought to, especially since I'm an adoptive dad. I know some of her resources are for parents. But I have been to her course, and as a non-therapist, as a non-clinician, um, I was in, you know, it was it was during COVID, so it was over Zoom, but I was in this room with all of these therapists, clinicians, and as, as a non-clinician, I could kind of assume like, oh, people know this. Like, I'm sure people know this, right? Yeah. This isn't just Deborah, but you actually see these people that are already professionals. They already have their master's in family therapy or whatever, and they're like, oh, okay, this is eye-opening. Mm. Like, this strategy, I need this. Or, oh my goodness, I had that issue too. Is that really how you address that? Like, it is, you know, uh, uh, going along with what you're saying, like, this is this is such needed, you know, information, you know, and, and beyond information, like real techniques and strategies for meeting the needs of kids. I mean, it's 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 substantial. It's It's really needed. You know, and you've gone through a lot of this content yeah. as well. I mean, just kind of because, as we mentioned on the interview, One Million Home actually produced this. So that was, um, you know, our staff, including Sam and, and our uh, colleague, David Ng. And, um, you know, you've been through this content. What Were there any kind of like main takeaways like, oh, I didn't realize that trauma does that to a kid or, or anything like that that kind of stuck out to you either from this interview or just from going through you know, all her various content. One of the things I found really encouraging was what Deborah mentioned about, um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Brandon, but she was saying about the stem cells and the part of the, the attachment areas of the brain and the opportunity yeah. opportunity for healing. Um, I found that so encouraging. I'm, I'm sure many other people found that encouraging encouraging as well the fact that actually with love and with the some of the techniques and some of the simple things you know like playing with your kid and having eye contact that that sort of healing can begin to take place and to me that is so so hope giving so yeah that uh, yeah. i mean perhaps some of the people listening out there they or have been through some of these traumatic situations and I, I think that would be an encouragement for them as well Absolutely. It's, it's it's really like, you know, God designed our bodies to be able to heal and to recover, but it does take mm. that intentionality, you know, whether that's from a therapist or whether that's from, you know, building attachment with your, with your parent or caregiver um, when the kid has gone through a trauma or a, a broken attachment. Um, there is still so much good to build on even you know, physiologically and psychologically, mm -hmm. um, like what she was talking about with the stem cells. I mean, yeah, it's it's really substantial. You know, I think my biggest uh, encouragement and my biggest takeaway from that conversation was what she was saying in regards to play. You know, it could be, it, mm. we could think like, oh, we're going to talk to the therapist. And she even talked a bit about this, like old approaches versus current approaches in, in the field of therapy. But I mean, what's one thing that any mom, dad, or other person, you know, maybe you're a, maybe you're an educator, maybe you, you know, do, you know, rec sports with kids or you're a Sunday school teacher or whatever, like the value of play cannot be understated. It can't be understated. Um, and the, oh, yeah. the, the positive effects that that has on kids in real big areas, you know, like when there is executive dysfunction, you know, what can you do to build up that proper function? You can play, 
you know, attachment, you know, between a parent and the kid. So I think that was my biggest takeaway um, from this conversation today. Um, and, and also an encouragement because I do play with my kids and it's, and it's good to play. So, so that was good, man. And that's what uh, Finland, I think, has really locked on to and is maybe ahead of the game. I, Mar- uh, my girlfriend, Mariana, has been telling me that I think they start something like school, I think maybe six years of age. Ah. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot, even at that time, of play. I think she said every 45 minutes they have something like a play time where they stop the academic work or whatever and play. So it's like, I think they're onto something there. And I think Deborah's obviously really backing that up even more. Yeah. And I think those Northern European countries from an education standpoint are actually ahead of a lot of the rest of the world. So so maybe that maybe that's a big piece to it. Uh, so anyways, guys, definitely check out not only Deborah's books, but uh, the Attachment Trauma Focused Therapy course. You can find that linked on uh, the thinkorphan.com website um, on the episode show notes uh, for this episode with Deborah Gray. It is uh, phenomenal material. And if you're like, uh, I'm not a clinician, it's not for me, but maybe... Um, maybe your kid sees a therapist and they would benefit from it. Like pass it along because it is it is eye-opening and, and really good content. I, I think that would maybe almost suffice as a recommendation, but I'm going to go back to something we said in the intro, which a recommendation for me would be to go watch Lost Kites. Uh, director Sam Rich <laughs> here on the pod today. Do it. <laughs> uh, go, go check out Lost Kites on YouTube uh, would be another uh, good recommendation. And uh, Sam, out of the editing room, onto the onto the main floor. Thanks for being with us today, buddy. Thanks for helping me. Uh, thanks for sharing the load with me. Oh, you're welcome. It's quite different being actually on the mic instead of just editing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, I appreciate you jumping in. And I... Uh, for all of our listeners, we hope that you take everything that you are hearing here on the Think Orphan podcast and that you're using it so that you can love and serve uh, orphans and vulnerable children with more and more excellence each and every day. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll be back with uh, Phil and me and Craig Greenfield in a couple weeks. Take care. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.